0: And it was very lonely because, you know, I, I allowed a lot of people uh, that that I could relate to um, being from Hawaii and then being in a primarily white space and then being around a lot of island kids who were either down to party and just ready to go for it and were a bunch of kids that I didn't necessarily grow up, up around to in, in the islands. So I felt kind of alienated in community on all sides while I was starting to ask these big questions and feel um, these big emotions towards God and towards being... Um, why don't you—it's it, 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 almost like this. God, why weren't you defending yourself in that classroom? You made me look like
1: an idiot. I'm Joshua S. Porter, and my book Death to Deconstruction is out now wherever you buy books or audiobooks. For the next few weeks, I'm wading even deeper into the waters of deconstruction by having conversations with people who, just like me, have all the great reasons that they should have deconverted. Abandonment, misogyny, hypocrisy, racism, doubt, disillusionment, failure— But all of them continue to follow Jesus, and I'm going to ask them why. Later in the series, we'll be hosting a QA and a session, so you can submit your questions at joshuasporter.com slash question. If you'd like to help me out, there's a few really easy ways that you can do that. Number one, buy a copy of Death to Deconstruction, or buy a copy and or copies for someone you think might like to read it. Can get a group of friends together and host a Death to Deconstruction small group study. There is a completely free small group study guide available at my website, joshuasporter.com. Tell other people about the book, post about it on your social media outlets, text a friend, bring it up in conversation. Leave Death to Deconstruction a good review on Amazon.com. Leaving a review is fast, it's free, it's easy, it goes a long way in supporting the book. Listen to the Depth to Deconstruction podcast and leave it a good review on the Apple Podcast app. This helps other people find the podcast, which helps other people find the book. And finally, follow along with my social media outlets to keep up with what's going on with the book, the podcast, future releases, speaking engagements, and more. Following accounts, I realize, doesn't seem like a huge deal, but again, this does help people find the book. Today I'm talking with my friend Jaron Oda about young adult angst, college professors, and YouTube videos. How do people say your name incorrectly when they read it off a paper but haven't heard it out loud? Uh, Jaren. Jaren? Yeah, I get that very often. That's uh, the last name of that fella on the Star Wars show. Um,
0: you know, previous pastor John Mark, when he first took me on stage, the first time I've ever been on stage, he called me Karin. Karin, and then he joked about how my name sounds exactly like a Star Wars name.
1: That so, but little did he know, if he had uh, also pronounced it incorrectly, but come closer to pronouncing it <laughs> correctly, it would have been the guy's name. Where did he like made up a whole new letter and everything?
0: <laughs> I know Karin. Yeah. Well, you know, if you type in my name on iMessage, it would
1: autocorrect to Karin. Oh, there you go. Every Maybe time. that's how it happened. Every time. Yeah, that he could get off the hook with that. And then do people always say Oda or do they say Uda? Oda. <laughs> <laughs> Oda. I've Oda. never really heard people pronounce my last name that much.
0: It's usually my first name, and by the by that time everyone gets it wrong.
1: Hmm. So Are we recording? Yeah, this is this is it. Okay. Did you come from a long line of Where did the Oda family come Where were you born?
0: I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, or okay. Oahu, but my family is if you want to go back I don't know, five, six generations from Japan. And that last name Oda stands for small rice patty. Really? Not related to Oda, Nobunaga Oda, who was the shogunate of like, what is that? 11th, 12th century or whatever. And he, his kanji was grand rice paddy. So that's how I know for a fact I'm not related to the Oda, Nobunaga
1: people. Wow. We're the small rice patties. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so close. So, so close. close. And then if you were born in Honolulu, how'd you end up in the continental U.S.? And then how'd you end up in the Pacific Northwest? So I was born and raised Honolulu, Hawaii. All my family's either on Oahu
0: or Kauai. And I... Rich history
1: of Jurassic Park. Why the sigh?
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's so much better things about Hawaii than Jurassic Park. No, that can't possibly be true. Go ahead. So I was born and raised there. All my family's still there, and at 18 years old, I uh, uh, thought about applying to, well, I actually got like one of those pamphlets, because I went to a private Catholic all-boys high school, which was awful and amazing at the same time. Wow. And because I went to a Catholic school, we got exposure to Catholic universities in the U.S., or in the mainland, because we are, you know. Yes, United yes, States. it's part of the America. Yes. yeah. And... Uh, I got a pamphlet for University of Portland. I had no context, no understanding of Portland at all, but ended up just going. So that's how I arrived in Portland as of 10 years ago.
1: Was this one option among many, or it just happened to be the first pamphlet someone handed you? One
0: option among a few, but I had talked to a few people who had gone to University of Portland who were a little ahead of me, and they enjoyed it. And it wasn't far from home. To be honest with you, it was more of my parents um, and family's kind of, not pressure, yes, pressure. instead of, and I have, you know, what a gift to be able to go off island, but I wanted to stay on on the island my entire life. I never thought about leaving Hawaii. Um, So I came up here very reluctant, very afraid uh, to Portland.
1: Wow. I've only ever been to Honolulu. I've never been anywhere else in Hawaii. Oh, you don't like the
0: sun, Josh.
1: No, I hate the sun, (laughs) but I don't mind going to sunny places for vacation because it's like, you know, going to an alien planet. It's like, you're not going to live there. You just go there briefly and then leave but i was in i went to honolulu for a concert so i landed drove to the concert then drove back to the uh, airport and went back home (laughs) this was to see nine inch nails circa 2007 or 8 and uh, i thought this was going to be my only opportunity in life to do so so i said i says to myself i says i'm getting a concert ticket hawaii is the closest place and i went to honolulu So your family sent you to an all boys Catholic school. I'm learning this for the first time. I've known you for a long time, but I didn't know that. Uh, Is that because your family was or is Catholic or is it just like a good school option nearby? They
0: they just, they primarily sent me there because one, I really struggled um, academically, not necessarily socially, but I did struggle socially in the sense I was hanging out with the wrong people. When I say wrong, I mean people that weren't, Necessarily engaged in school. Sure, if that makes sense. Yes. So people that were
1: not calling you to a high academic <laughs> standard.
0: <laughs> yes, and the primary reason for going to this school was because um, it wasn't hard to get into, and I would get in less trouble. That was the whole like method behind okay. going to the school. Not because we're Catholic,
1: right? So, but at some point in this journey, uh, spoiler alert for your life story. Uh, currently, today. You are a pastor, have been a pastor for a number of years now, and, are, you know, seminary, following Jesus, talking about Jesus with uh, young people in particular. Right now, that's your area of special focus and expertise, but, you know, extends out. You you work at a very big church with a lot of different types of... People so you don't just work. With, what I mean is, like, if you're a pastor at your church, you inevitably end up pastoring more than just you know, the, the people in the youth group, even mm-hmm. if you're a, a youth pastor or a young adult pastor. Um, so at some point in your story, this guy struggling to, uh, you know, make good grades in Honolulu, you come to faith in Jesus. How the heck did that happen?
0: I was 15 years old and I went to this um, four square church called New Hope Diamond Head. And I went on a camp that my mom signed me up for without me knowing wow <laughs> and we were at camp malaya kahana it's on the north shore of oahu and i don't know how ex- to how else to explain it to you but at that beach in that area i still remember being 15 years old or 14 and a half i think i had dyed hair and i thought it was all cool and with the tank top wait, wait, on dyed what like a blonde you know we oh, all wanted wow. to be blonde and I remember on that beach experiencing the presence and love of the resurrected Jesus. I don't know how, you know, when when you're in the midst of sin and confession and then you experience like divine love show up. I don't know how else to explain it. But at 15 on that part of the beach, I felt like I was the center of God's world for, for that night. And that's kind of what sent me on the, the course of seeking Jesus.
1: So your mom signed you up. is. Is your family, your immediate family, are they Christians? Do they follow Jesus? They are now. Okay.
0: Um, My mom and grandma became followers, or I would say became Christians, and then now are following Jesus, but became Christians in this giant four square movement that happened in in Honolulu and throughout all of the islands in in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was through my parents' divorce where where I started living with my grandparents, and my grandparents and my mom started just like spiritually seeking. Um, And that led to attending this church in the Kalihi area and um, opening themselves up to Jesus.
1: Wow. So, okay. so your mom's kind of first to the party or precedes you, signs you up for this camp. You experience in a very real, intimate way the the love of Jesus in a way that, you know, by your own admission kind of defies easy explanation. It was perfect because now you have all the components for... The um, Gen X and millennial, uh, I hesitate to use a word like evangelical, but American Christian story, right? Because you come to faith at youth camp, at an actual youth camp with an experience that you describe, and not even in a pejorative way, but as an emotional kind of um, one-off, not to mean that it was never replicated, but it was unique. There was something like very... Um, specific about that experience and then eventually end up now when you come to uh, Portland to go to school at this point you're are you still following Jesus how this is I, I'm guessing four or five years after that camp right yeah
0: about three and a half or f- yeah four years after that camp um, and I'll just to to say one thing about my youth group that I will always appreciate it is is it was highly experiential with a lot of hospitality. So I didn't necessarily, necessarily I wasn't exposed to biblical theology or systematic theology or some quite, you know, apologetics about the faith. However, I was definitely exposed and warmed into leadership development and Ohana culture. I don't know how else to call it, but like, man, they were talk about warm culture. If there's something that it offers is you can taste and feel the gospel, you know, through yeah, the faces totally. and people. And so I had a high experiential, high hospi- hospitality community faith. And then when I went to the University of Portland, I, I, it's a private Catholic university and that's where I started to, I mean, philosophy 101 class, law of non-contradiction, a, B, you know what I mean? Just some of these things that I had never been exposed to and never had to question um, really started to come up. At a private Catholic university where you're supposed to have a you know liberal arts education, but that liberal arts education, Um, Started to really press on my high experience, high hospitality faith. And I was left feeling um, a lot of different emotions and a lot of different questions um, at the school.
1: It's interesting that you can say now uh, these attributes of your youth group culture that for which you are deeply appreciative um, and you're not even saying anything bad about them, but I'm assuming that the inference is that it isn't all good, like any church, like any culture. Yeah, 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 there have there's weaknesses in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, would you have been able to say that it, in the moment of transitioning out of you know that that youth culture and then being in Portland and having these um, assumptions challenged or the con your context challenged in a major way? Uh, was there ever any like well what the heck this my youth group experience did not prepare me for what are all these different ideas i feel as if i was lied to or was that not your is that not your wiring to be like what the heck i was i was screwed over by my youth group so i would love to talk about
0: that resentment in a second but i will say i remember this experience of having my faith talked about in a classroom setting that felt sterile and felt like People were poking holes in and I came up like I said with a primarily experiential space where I felt God speaks today and the Spirit is always with me and then you hear God talked about in such a sterile way it feels like I don't know how to explain it but I'm, I'm trying to figure out the words to say but it feels like something so deeply personal is just yeah it was being thrown and biopsied yeah. on a table and, it, and and all of a sudden I felt angry a ton of anger not just at the classroom but at my inability to stand in these spaces, you know? So I had high experience, but very little kind of ground or foundation around philosophical or theological spaces, you know? So it started to hurt. I don't know how else to put it, but it felt like I was being betrayed. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. And and I was around these kids, a lot of them Catholic. And I would consider, you know, um, Catholic in a nominal sense where they understood the scriptures. They understood quote-unquote spiritual formation to some degree and i would see them pound 40 ounce liquors and party <laughs> and right. you know, um and at the same time while i was trying to live an aesthetic life and you know seek jesus in those first months um i was like and these people know that much more than i do about my own faith about something i consider as, as an experiential you know personal thing so a lot of those
1: am i making sense a yeah, lot of those absolutely. things
0: started to just creep up in the very first months Of college,
1: And did that give birth to the resentment that you mentioned? Absolutely.
0: Hmm. Um, And I think the problem, the the other problem was I didn't have an understanding of trauma-informed care at the time too. Maybe not trauma-informed care, but what trauma can do, how it informs how you relate Mm -hmm. to yourself, to others. And I didn't even understand, but in college I began to, um, I was asleep to a lot of my wounds and a lot of my childhood wounds. And as a result, I didn't understand why I perceived God. As father, in a negative
1: pejorative, and 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 it was more unconscious, right? But you definitely felt. Would you be able? Would you have been able to say, "Oh, to some degree, I perceive the father negatively," or was that all beneath? Beneath, I okay. could
0: not. I I just remember, <coughs> I just remember um, having a lot of big emotions with very little room to articulate. And I think it was well, as a novelist who said, "Nothing is worse than an unarticulated expression." <laughs> and I was, I was doing that constantly or I was feeling that constantly in college. And it was very lonely because, you know, I, I, a, lot, a lot of people uh, that, that I could relate to um, being from Hawaii and then being in a primarily white space and then being around a lot of island kids who were either down to party and just ready to go for it and were a bunch of kids that I didn't necessarily grow up, up around to in, in the islands. So I felt kind of alienated in community on all sides. While I was starting to ask these big questions and feel um, these big emotions towards God and towards being, um, why don't you? It, it, it will, it's almost like this, God. Why weren't you defending yourself in that classroom? You made me look like an idiot.
1: Wow. Yeah. Is that am I yeah. making sense? And yeah. that
0: that was the the feeling, though. If you could come with come away from that, but times that you know every week. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, there's uh, this whole bit in. Um Brenning Manning's memoir, which you and I talked about recently together, but the, where he's uh, describing this experience he had, I believe, as um, in a group that he called the Little Brothers, where they were living in rural France and living amongst the poor, and he would bring water in on a donkey's back and shovel manure, and um, he was in chapel one evening and felt as if the Spirit of God Uh, after a season of being uh, in France and serving the poor this way, laid bare his motives and they were all selfish. And this was unbeknownst to him. He was shocked by it, reviled this. um, He felt as if he was a a fraud, a failure, and was so deeply um, shocked and troubled and despairing at the news, the revelation of his uh, what he calls self-centered yuck, um, that he committed to uh, s- spiritual suicide. He was, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw everything down. I'm done with this. Uh, these overwhelming feelings of worthlessness. And uh, he turned around to leave the chapel. Another priest comes in, asks him what happened. He tells him, you know, exactly how he fe- feels and what God revealed to him. And uh, through the conversation that he has with his brother and this other priest, he realizes that this. Uh, possible deconversion moment has become an invitation into deeper faith, right? He's so good. yeah. Yeah. He talks to the, the, the other priest tells him you are on the, the precipice, the precipice. of receiving the greatest grace of your life, you know? Um, mm. and it occurs to me rereading that memoir recently and thinking through, um, deconversion moments that, you know, everybody who follows Jesus has these, Uh, what you might describe as an off-ramp, even though there are no off-ramps. You either follow Jesus or you don't. You can just step to the left or the right of the narrow road at any point. Um, But there are these moments that feel like uh, off-ramps, discernible. This is my opportunity to bail out because of compounding issues or unaddressed trauma or I've been hurt, legitimate pain and suffering and um the hypocrisy that i've seen the abuses of the bible or or the church or organized religion that i've seen and it occurs to me that those moments whether whether they're within or without you know whether you're observing hurt or you're uh, you're internalizing hurt that's been done to you or you're dealing with hurt within your own messed upness uh, become inevitably and, and maybe even always invitations into greater spiritual maturity, uh, the, the opportunity to either go away or go deeper. Mm-hmm. And do you or did you have um, those moments or seasons as you're going through that what you m- maybe wouldn't have described consciously as resentment, but we're dealing with and confronting that kind of, uh, unaddressed trauma or the, um, the, the conflict with God that he's not showing up in class to defend himself and kind of leaving you to your own devices. And you don't know what to do yet. You don't have a background in systematic theology or how to argue philosophy with Catholic students. And, um, was there, were there moments a moment or was it a season where you felt or considered or even thought about in some subconscious way? Like maybe this isn't for me after all maybe that experience at that camp was something that I contrived maybe I, or, or maybe it wasn't I just don't want to do this anymore either way great questions Josh man I can't wait to read your book yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um,
0: it's so relatable uh, it was it was a when I when we use the word season I would say to make it time-based it felt like it was like over a year and a half where I just asked have you ever watched zeitgeist?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, the YouTube <laughs> documentary. <laughs> so yeah. here's
0: the one issue that happened. All of those things came up, and then it was like the intuitive part of me wanted to All of to these dispro- things mean everything you just Everything we just true. talked about. Okay, yeah. And as they were coming up, the intuitive side of me wanted to start disproving God because I felt his absence. I was hurt. Mm. You know, I was hurt by people being able to explain away things that were intimate to my memory, to my person. Yeah, what better
1: way to get back at him than erase him? I
0: I couldn't articulate that, but I just had energy, angry energy. So I started to Google alone, which is already a bad sign, and I found really intense documentaries, things about church history, things about religious history that I had never been exposed to, and all of a sudden I started to deconstruct even you know, what Christianity and and the Hawaiian Islands and ever I mean, man, you you just, it's a rabbit hole. And it was through a number of YouTube videos along with a few fancy sayings from, at the time, the Four Dark Horsemen of YouTube. You remember them? Like uh, Chris Hitchens, Dawkins, all those guys. Just a few fancy, which had some heavy arguments. Stephen Fry, which you've critiqued. I've seen it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the time, all of those things gave me energy, dude, to like... Oh, yeah, why was I doing this? What's the point of integrity? What's the point of all of these things? If the, You know what I mean? If Am I starting to make sense? So yeah, I started to just really depersonalize and untether from these intimate moments of my youth development. Um, and, and bear in mind, as I was a teenager, I was also asleep to trauma, so I was living a hyper-dualistic life. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> Meaning I was, you know, promiscuous, not just sexually, but also... Um, you know, being entrusted with student leadership and, and not understanding what it meant to carry leadership on behalf of another. So, I mean, there was a lot of things in my high school career that, you know, act one way, do another way in in an environment. Yeah. And part of that now looking back was absolutely, I mean, I could almost explain why I made some of the decisions I made based on my, uh, the sins that happened to me and the sins that I, you know, were involved in as a kid and as a young adult, all that to say, so I'm I'm just trying to point that out to say my high school experience wasn't perfect in my in my own life, yeah. Not just ministry, um, but it was as I was starting to go through all of those questions and YouTube videos. I read this book called Heaven Is For Real. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. Heaven Is For Real by Colton <laughs> Burpo. Do you remember that book? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and who who wrote that? I don't know. I, oh, it was I the movie know. that I'm came sorry. from it. Yeah,
1: we don't want to give it a, too much of an ad, but yeah, it was on a grocery store in caps, and it was a huge deal. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I, th- I think it was around 2013 or 2014 mm-hmm. when I read it. And um, at the time, here's what was helpful, too. I, I was staying in touch with this uh, Father Marvin Barris. His full name shoot. <laughs> Father Marvin, call him Father Marv. <laughs> he was from uh, the islands and is a, was a priest. And, who, you know, he relocated from Oahu to New York. And he was helping me to process these deconstructive spaces, which was really helpful over the phone. And I remember reading Heaven is for Real and going, so this kid saw God and God looked like a giant white man with a long beard. (laughs) That's the best way I can describe it to you from reading that. And I felt so alienated. What made you so want to read alienated. this book?
1: Why did you pick this up? And Were you just flipping around? Remember, like at? I said,
0: I had a lot of energy. Not a lot of uh, direction okay. and guides. So
1: this was ammunition against God. Well, it
0: turned out to be that. Because mm. remember, I was genuinely seeking. But, sure. you know, the rider and the elephant thing. Yep. My rider, or my, I don't know which one was first, but that part of me wanted to deep down say, I knew this wasn't true. Right. So I had a lot of energy to kind of get yeah. go there. Now you found a gold mine. Specific. Dawkins' heaven is for real. <laughs> well, hey, when you're researching alone, Zeitgeist. man. guy's you, when you're hurt yeah. personally and philosophically, you know, still young. Yeah, and and you have the modern sage of Google. Those yeah. aren't. A, that's not a good combination. And think about <laughs> how
1: interesting the the plethora of you're describing a spectrum of sources, right? Usually, especially in the kind of current deconstruction fad, the the sources tend to. I don't mean to simplify, but they tend to belong to one basic camp or they, they're they easily lumped in together. Or they have the same kind of... They make the same kinds of promises. and But you're describing a number of uh, wildly diverging <laughs> sources. So think about it like this. You've got uh, Hitchens, Dawkins, Stephen Fry, deeply intelligent, well-read, educated, fantastically well-spoken, especially uh, Hitchens for oh, me personally. Man. It's like I actually listen to Hitchens frequently as an inspiration for my teaching because he was so uh, well-spoken and well-read and great in the moment. He's great off the cuff, you know. Um, And obviously, he's the author of uh, God is Not Great. His beef is not with the God of Christianity, but with the idea of theism in, in general, as is the case with Dawkins and Stephen Fry. But of course, they end up going to bat against the judeo christian god because Absolutely. he's the the big popular one and it eventually bubbles up into deeply personal you know uh, angry high emotion vitri- yeah high emotion which i mirrored yeah yeah it's very interesting they're very mad at a guy that does not exist for them um, but they're, they're super smart. and their cases, a lot of their cases against theism are intelligent cases. Some I would argue are l- less so, but they, they make good points, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, worth engaging as someone who's learning and growing um, and has the fortitude to, to deal with that kind of stuff. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got zeitgeist, which is about the laziest, stupidest throw, throw together. That was instantaneously discredited by any number of, you know, historians. Which I didn't know. Yeah, of course. Well, who would? And look, there was like
0: three million views, bro. Three million views. As a 19-year-old, you're looking at that, you're going, that's credibility. Remember, if you can make it a trend, you can make it true. Yeah, just the most ridiculous
1: and hilarious claims made in Zeitgeist that... Don't even hold up to simple scrutiny, well, let alone well, what citation. What about the Egyptian spit? You know, <laughs> the Egyptian archetypes. That
0: one still gets me. Don't, Josh, don't don't just throw out the baby with the, the Egyptian no, archetypes. No, Hey, come man, on. Egyptian. Their Egyptian, whole thing okay. with the,
1: uh, what was their thing about? Uh, like, astrology. They, well, they named the wrong Egyptian god. They're on about oh, oh. Horus instead of Ra, you know, like. They're like, well, first of all, Ra's the sun god. And then they try to make it into a pun in English, oh, sun god, son of god. <laughs> As this brutal expose. Oh, Jesus, he po- he can't deal with zeitgeist. That was hilarious. Um, but yeah, that thing circulated, and people were like, oh, man, I had no idea. My whole life was a lie. <laughs> uh,
0: I'm not even kidding you, man. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, is aw- it is quite awful for people to watch a YouTube video and have their deep-seated beliefs
1: and attachments
0: pulled from under them. Yeah, well, and no, no one likes that. to care for
1: you. No one likes that. Yeah, yeah. And you know, there's there's good versions of uh, where I talk about this a little in the book, but I think human beings, as a general rule, are suckers. You know, we <laughs> we want to be convinced, and we are easily convinced, and we don't realize that we're being um, duped. Uh, documentaries, if there's a docu- Netflix documentary, then, oh, you got to believe this. You don't believe it? Did you not see the documentary? The documentary Sp- closed Must be peer-reviewed. Yeah. <laughs> we want to believe stuff and we we especially want to believe, you know, we have the confirmation bias, so we want to believe what we want to believe. And uh, things like heaven is for real work in a different way because you you want to, on some level... Uh, lend credibility to what you want to believe is true by lending discredibility to what you don't want to be true. And nothing will do that quite like reading something like Heaven is for Real or, you know, today it would be something like watching God's Not Dead or something like that. You you read these things. I remember flipping through a copy of <laughs> somewhere, someone's so mad, Re- flipping through a copy of Heaven is for Real in a grocery store waiting in the waiting in line. That's how popular it was. It was like at the supermarket on the faith spindle. You know, they had the, they had a faith based for, you know, chicken soup for the Christian soul and heaven is for real and thinking, Oh my God, I can't believe that this is in a book. This is so irresponsible. What in the world? What's the real story here? You know, like uh, it's allegedly the story of a child and this is so confused anyway. Well, they're calling me. So, you know, put the book up. Um, But my point was that you're going to like really smart people, not so smart people and not so believable people all to, you know, mash together this case against God and the church, right? And feeling personally
0: alienated the more and more I did it. Right. Because God doesn't look like me. All of a sudden he doesn't talk like me. He only only shows up to certain people because I started watching videos about atheists getting you know, uh, their lives save, like seven hundred club stuff too, you know, where I'm like, well, why didn't you do that to me when I'm doubting it? you know what I mean? So I started just going all right, yeah. down and down and like you said, confirmation bias started to grow on a deep level for me. Okay. Um, so all of those things kind of compounded to the degree in which uh I went to my first party <laughs> in college and bro, come on. When you have just when you're at the level of deconstruction, and you're dealing with your young adult development and your burning passion to, you know, your eros, right? Mm-hmm. And w- you know, you're alone, you have autonomy, and that autonomy. Your parents um, are on an yeah, island, far away. Yeah, far away, and I feel completely alienated from once from what was so intimate to me at one point, and the whole reason why. I mean, it was ve- It was a perfect storm. Looking back on it, it was a perfect storm for me to choose the way of the world, if you will.
1: Yeah. And then you, so at that point, would you have, would you have said or articulated, you know what? I'm estranged. However you would have worded it, but would you have said that you were estranged from Jesus, estranged from your faith, that you were not a believer, not following Jesus? Or was there some part of you that was like, Oh, I haven't committed to one thing or the other, but I'm going to live as though I am estranged from my faith. I think more the latter because I still had a lot of
0: anger towards God. Mm -hmm. Um, which is funny because I was still definitely a believer then, you know, but yeah. definitely a vagabond one or a prodigal one, if you will. I had one college friend say, this is, you know, farther down my journey of faith that we're talking about it a little earlier on the deconstruction. But he said, whenever you find Jesus, you stop partying. And then whenever you leave Jesus, you party with us again. And that statement hurt me, but it was so true. <laughs> it was so true. He got you. He got me good. So I would just say, um, that was the perfect storm. And, uh, do you want me to talk about how worse it gets or do you want me to talk about the turning point? You know, take, take me from one to the other. So it was definitely, again, faith is not a light switch. It's definitely to me more like a dimmer. And at this point, the dimmer felt very low, but I had a lot of energy to, you know, disprove this God. And as I was going through that, I remember, um, reading a letter that my youth, one of our pastors gave me at my graduation. And again, it was relationship that reminded me of staying the course. I don't know. The, the, the letter basically said life won't be fair. Hmm. And if you stay with Jesus, you will see and experience things you could only, could only dream of. So it had a little bit of that, you know, victorious thing in it, but it also had a realism. Yeah. And that realism was really grounding me because I started to experience some of the hollowness of college life and that wasn't fulfilling either. Then I had this realism about how suffering and how choosing the way of Jesus, um, there's actually something unique about that. And I've always ached for the unique. So maybe it's just a personality type thing, but that letter, I remember I still have it by the way. It's like a, it says dreams on the (laughs) front thing and it's all chicken scratch lettering, but I still have, I've kept it for years. And that pastor was the same person who told me to go check out solid rock. Cause this pastor from Hillsboro, um, solid rock. So we Googled solid rock one night, jumped into a friend's car a church in Oregon. Yes. Mm-hmm. And went to solid rock downtown, showed up at first Baptist, sat in the back. One of the, Few people of color in there going. What is going on? I don't dress like these people. I don't look like these people. Right. Some dude with a cardigan gets up. Who's I'm <laughs> like ew.
1: And like what is this? You know. So and you're in the middle of downtown Portland yes. in a crowd hundreds of people in an old Baptist church. Yes. That was mostly white. Mm-hmm. And off of a Google Very a recommendation, recommendation to a Google. Yes. And now and okay.
0: And remember, as we're driving this car, I'm parting at the time. I'm kind of half in, half out, um, but aching on both sides. And when I get there, I sit in the back and I remember the pastor who I was ha- obviously judging. I was judging the whole thing. It's so different from my context. And by the end of his message, I saw a pastor who was limping, but calling everyone to follow Jesus. So I'd never experienced, maybe I have, but he was honest about his own process and he was bringing the Bible back to life for me. I don't mm-hmm. know how to explain it, but the, the scriptures became a well. Well, wow. uh, Not a piece of cement. Yeah, uh, I, I. It was he read a new testament. People got obviously it's just John Mark's heart too, but it was his honesty that made me go, "What? He's still on the journey too." Hmm. So <laughs> there know? was vulnerability there, oh, and that was something man. that you'd been missing. Oh, it, re- it absolutely wrecked me. Hmm. You know, um, it's like there was this story about a rabbi who, you know, the little kid was like rabbi why does it say to place these words on your heart and not in them and then he told the little boy well because we hope that one day when the crack happens what's on you will will seep in you that's what happened to me like his vulnerability cracked something in on me and then that that all those experiences that were laid on me of the love of jesus started to crack fill that crack a bit more that's what happened every sunday almost
1: Yeah, you've, Now you're going back to church. Going back Sunday to church. And it was
0: the people of God and, you know, the New Testament and people of God stuff from N.T. Wright, that just blew my mind. The compelling character of Jesus was absolutely striking to me and how relevant it was. You know, it wasn't back there 2,000 years ago. Um, so, <clears throat> and, you know, sometimes I come hungover. I remember when you taught on Caesar and Jesus. And here's a pivotal point. I'm not just saying this to build your ego because i'm on your podcast I, I mean this because i took your advice i remember going okay god maybe you are in this and i asked the spirit again like you know i grew up in a four square context so asking the spirit was common and uh, it, i remember feeling the invitation to go grab to talk to you but you were in the ladies lounge
1: okay now you gotta <laughs> can you, you explain, explain that? that yeah you ex- Okay, at the church where we both attended and uh, I worked and then Jaron eventually worked, (laughs) there was what one might call a green room (laughs) for the staff and leadership to get together and have meetings before each Sunday gathering um, and go over the plan for the evening or to, you know, just go and rest for a second because this is a church big enough to have multiple gatherings in a row. Uh, but the room we used to have those meetings was actually called the Ladies' Lounge, on, I think on the door. Yeah, it actually says the Ladies' Lounge uh, from the first Baptist church that we rented. I'm so sorry, Josh. Yes. So, <laughs> so it became kind of a colloquialism that would be like, oh, I'll be in the Ladies' Lounge, you know, and no, no one even thinks about it anymore. Obviously, case in point, Jaron just said it as if the audience went, you were in the Ladies' Lounge. <laughs> there were many different people in the Ladies' <laughs> Lounge. Both men and women, uh, because it was just a green room uh, hangout place. So you were in the green room. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's better.
0: <laughs> and I remember going, oh, shoot, he's like behind the curtain or whatever. Literally. Trying, yeah. There was a literal curtain yeah. in front of the door. Yeah. yeah. And the curtain tore from the... I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 so I just was like, dude, I had this intuitive sense. And I, it had been a while since I felt that much of an invitation from this. Usually he shows up with a beating heart and my gut. So it's a very bodily experience for me.
1: You mean like a, the just a sense? Yeah, that a feeling. sense, yeah. an
0: impression. And so I went back there and I talked to you and you were like, hey, what's up? <laughs> I remember you just kind of casually welcomed me and then I asked you um, to pray for me and as you were praying, you said you saw me with a stack of books on either side. Yeah, I remember this. You do remember yeah, this? Yeah, totally. Oh, it was weird. This is like 2013, 2014. Yeah. You literally, did you know I'm in the midst of some deep questions? No, I had questions. No yeah. And then after you prayed for me, you said, you know, um, this image kind of, this has been helpful to me to read books that are in line with my season of life. And so maybe you could consider that. And that was one of the pivotal moments for me because I randomly picked up reason for God. If you've ever read it at Powell's, mm-hmm. it was used, it was cheap. And I said, Oh, what the heck could not put that book down. Wow. If you for your people listening to it, it is one of the, I mean, I wept through that thing. Wow. Because it took me through church history, which I had no idea. It took me through what Christianity, how it makes sense to the world in in, in light of science, in light of philosophy, in light of suffering. It gave me, it opened my eyes to the Christianity of suffering well. Um, And I never.
1: Which was something badly missing from your theology.
0: Badly missing. How suffering can make a believer great and deep. You know, I had never really. Touch the can and so that was a pivotal moment for me. And right. then w- along with that book came John Marks and the Your Guys Team series on emotionally healthy church, mm-hmm. which absolutely wrecked me because like I said, I had no understanding of trauma or how things done to you could impact your choices. Dealing with and your, your past, sin patterns,
1: digging deeper, N- none of beneath that. the surface. I went
0: from, you know, inherently dirty, that's that was the perspective of myself, inherently dirty to deeply wounded. And this wo- these wounds now tell stories about how I was impacted. And it, the compassion of Jesus just flooded through me during that series. I remember showing up on Sundays in the overflow, being in the first row of the overflow, which is a very embarrassing space to, place to sit, right, as you know, and yeah. just weeping. Because I was so moved by the God of compassion who would be specific enough to know my story and the ins and outs of my sins and, and, and not leaving me there. I, I I wish I could explain it better, but the no, th- I think you're doing it. Great. was the emotionally healthy series. It was the New Testament, of the people of God, and then it was, you know, a se- I think it was the Holy Spirit series too. Mm-hmm. Which um, those three pillars at the time of being at Bridgetown, along with your guys' call to say, if you don't live in the city, we love you, um, but we're not trying to become a mega church. We want to be a, p- a church for the city. I I looked at that. I remember going. There was a challenge that every time. You, one of you would step up there, you challenged to some degree the vision of Jesus lived, getting it, not getting it right, getting it lived. Um, and you had the getting it right and getting it lived in the same place on a Sunday. I, I mean, all of those dynamics just made me burn for God again. So I don't know how to explain it.
1: Yeah. Was that like, uh, was it similar to the way that, you know, I love your uh, word picture, the faith as a dimmer switch. Was that much like the dimmer switch had slowly decrescendoed, you know, till it was very, very dim. Was it now being slowly turned back up? Was it gradual in the same way that deconstruction was gradual?
0: Yes and no. It was getting there. The spirit was, you know, hitting me with my imagination. And, and we did Garden City as well. And it was, a, you know, what is minds to do? All of those things, I, you know, God's grace just started to touch on those things. And I started asking questions I had never asked before. And asking it finally around people. So I ended up joining community, Bridgetown community. Been in the same community now for seven years. And I feel bad for them. (laughs) But it was around my community where I was asking a lot of these questions. But for the first time, I was asking these things out loud with people who love Jesus. That was a huge, huge difference. Looking back on it, I really don't think I would have been able to, you know, stay the course and enjoy following Jesus. That's another thing, enjoying it. Um, had I not had people who were walking uh, walking the faith with me because I asked so many questions. I remember when Resla Aslan's book came out, wh- which one was it, The Many Faces of Jesus or whatever? You remember that one? Yeah. That one would have deconstructed my faith had it not been for my friend Ryan who said, oh, that's interesting. Well, guess what? There's a lot of criticism around that book too. So read this one, The Meaning of Jesus by N.T. Wright. And uh, what's the other guy's name? The guy who metaphorizes
1: Metaphorizes,
0: <laughs> <laughs> metaphorizes the crucifixion, <laughs> you know. From anyway, yep. it was them two going at it in a duel, and I just started to get exposed to a lot of um, the nuance of following Jesus and asking questions. So, how was that different?
1: How was that different than you know you described? Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're describing uh, a process that was um, m- more isolated when you were in the deconstruction phase and you were going to uh, sources, not just, I mean, I don't mean to paint it like uh, it's a, a severely and entirely selfish thing, but you're dealing with a lot of legitimate pain and hurt and legitimate questions, good questions worth asking. So you're going to sources and um, it feels as if you what you want to be not true is is being proven false, you know, that by the Dawkins and the Hitchens and the Heavens, <laughs> it's for real. Dude, but, yeah. Um, but that's happening in in kind of on your own. You're on your own kind Absolutely. of soul journey. How alienated. The, you know uh, Alienated, experience of yeah, alienation. driven away rem- from your community. I remember
0: that feeling very well, man. Yeah. It's yeah. an awful feeling.
1: And so how was that different than now you're let's say like you said you're reading something that would have um, propelled you on another deconstruction journey but you're doing it in community and you're having conversations not in isolation and there are people not saying oh shame on you don't even open your mind to that trash you should be terrified of hearing anything that disagrees with our point of view but who said oh interesting there's another point of view tell me what you think about this how was that different than the isolated journey um
0: I think it almost answers itself. I don't know. I mean, I, f- I, felt, I felt like I finally had, you know, different perspectives that I could trust and stayed with me as I was asking. Mm. Um, I mean, you had to see these people again next yeah, week. Yeah, man. And, and a lot of them were coworkers and friends. I started just around the church community. What was so helpful about Bridgetown's culture was, and it's some of it people have critiqued, but I thought it was... The most helpful thing, the thoughtfulness it was so helpful to me. Um, and not that, you know, we would be just intellectually puffed up because it was getting it lived. That was the call of Bridgetown, yeah. which I loved as well. But it was thoughtful. We're not going to just take the black and white answer. And I was not on a black and white journey because the f- sometimes it would be like, wow, I really trust in him. And other days it'd be like, dude, I found this book. <laughs> or i found this perspective and this is you know what i mean so yeah, the journey's, journey's is not dimmers. seamless so, it's no, up and man, down no man it was yeah. up and down i mean yeah so th- i would just say the difference was i find i i could now have more committed people who followed jesus and who lived who tried to live like jesus as these questions were being brought up you know
1: you know it's funny your story is a lot like a, you know it's funny it's a lot like my story but <laughs> it, it, and there are a lot of components that are really really similar um I had, had gone through my own journey with doubt and flirting with deconstruction and despair and um, and had moved a, a long distance to get to Portland, ended up at, just like you, Solid Rock in Oregon, um, at the same in the same old First Baptist building. And at that point, you know, I was... Um, It wasn't like a 180 where I went in, you know, really torn up and came out like, oh, man, I guess I'll follow Jesus after all. But I was in a very uh, um, fluid state of kind of faith flux or theological flux where Mm -hmm. I was my mind was really supple. I was open to uh, ideas and really wanting to learn. And um, and it was fascinating to me because I wound up in this place where just like you. I came in, and for different reasons, you know, like I was one of the all-white group of uh, congregants in First Baptist. But I did feel like, in a different way, um, oh man, I don't, I can't relate to these people, you know. there was uh, you're the, from the south. Dude. I'm from the south. <laughs> you know, the culture of Portland's very different. Uh, the way there's there's a and and it's not even necessarily a bad thing, but there. There's a language, a vernacular, a kind of posturing that's unique to the Pacific Northwest that I was unfamiliar with. And um, But just like you, what struck me, not in the, in the first instant of being there, but over, you know, even like week two, week three, was the family of God aspect. I couldn't believe that even in a place this big, I'd never been to a big, big church like that. Um, and even in a place this big, there were... Um, Yeah. Screw ups. There was fail. There were failures and it didn't take long for us to, you know, have conflict with other people because people are people. But um, there was so much familial love. I I remember almost uh, adjusting to it in a way where it became not taken for granted, but the wallpaper of my church experience where I'm like, okay, so great. This is family. I think I understand how this works. At least I'm learning how this works. And then some friends of mine, move from georgia to portland and they you know come to church for the first time and me not being the gregarious personality the outgoing personality like i don't think that i'm a shut-in or anything but it's just not really my personality to run around being like hey what's up my name's josh and really that's that's not you (laughs) you didn't notice and you know i hid behind the curtain uh The, but my friends were coming to church, and they were shocked. They were like, how the heck do you know all these people? You know, Because like, people are just coming up to me in a very normal and uh, uh, sincere way. Like, oh, hey, man, what's up? I was in a house church, and they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe this. This is a group of people that I traveled with, and so there's no... Um, consistent community other than this tiny group of people who mm-hmm. live together in a van and they were blown away. And and I would even say like romanticized, romanced by this idea. It's like, Oh man, you could be known by people and they'll know you and they didn't look like me. They didn't have the same kind of interests. I didn't look for a click because there wasn't one for me. I didn't go, Oh, who's to punk rock? Who's wearing <laughs> black clothes? You know? Um, I just, whoever was around me and said, hey, what's your name? And I said, Josh, you know, and and my wife and I, we committed to doing that. We're like, let's just actually try and see what happens. Um, So I had that same experience. I had the same experience where, yes, I was drawn in by those same elements of thoughtfulness. And it was a deeply theologically formational period in a church that was concerned for theological Mm -hmm. formation as much as, you know, spiritual formation, getting... Um, the head and the heart right and caring about both things well and the lived, ex- not just experience, but the lived discipleship to yeah. Jesus. But it was all in the context of the family of God. And, you know, I wanted to ask you about this part because for me, um, the first couple of things that were huge uh, revelations for me as to the value, the really cash value of community were one, um the first big celebration that I had in life, uh, which was probably like having our first kid and then two, the first big suffering that came along. So I had Mm. done neither thing in the context of that deep family of God community setting. And I mean, I mean, this is actually just a small group, you know, the same, probably similar to many small group formats, not some kind of miraculous reinvention. We get together once (laughs) a week you know, and, and read the Bible and do studies and have conversations. And, um, we had a kid and all of a sudden there were these people that came around you and were sharing in this like deep sense of celebration with you and bringing food to your house. And I'd never experienced anything like that before. Um, not as an adult, it was different than my experience in church growing up. And I was like, man, this is in- incredible. It's so much better than if we were, if it was just me and Abby alone in our apartment somewhere, we it would have been beautiful. We would have had each other. We would have been grateful for everything, but man, this, you know, I, I had no idea that sharing and joy could be so meaningful. Hmm. And then shortly after that, really months after that, my dad died and the same stuff happened, but with a shared sense of grief. You know, the mm. community came around. We didn't ask them to do anything. There was people brought food and they said, oh, let me do this for you and I'll take care of this. And, um, let me take you to the airport." you know, all that kind of stuff that only happens when you, and these aren't like, um, I, I want to be clear, not like, My best buddies that I go and, you know, every single week I'm going to the (laughs) movies with every single one of them. These are my it's my church small group. You know, some of them were my close friends. Others of them I only knew through the small group. But every single one of them came around us the same way. And I was blown away. I was, like, oh, my God, this the difference between lived community and not for all its crappiness and all the screw ups and all the ways we hurt each other it, to me was in the lived experience was inarguable. So you're now in a community and you have space to wrestle with ideas, with vulnerability, with accountability, with other people who are going to challenge you, not just you and the YouTube video. Did you have that same thing where it wasn't just like, Oh man, I get to wrestle through these ideas with people, but like, the shared life thing that we tend to romanticize in church, but we it, do. it turns out to be, uh, to a certain extent, very true. You know, that like there is beautiful, and it's, it's all throughout the new Testament and the history of the church. There's a reason that following Jesus is done with other people. Did you experience that you had already had experience with church community in the past? Was it comparable? Was it a rediscovery or was it something new?
0: Yeah, that's a good question because you know, as you're talking, I love that you're talking so much about community and the way that Bridgetown had formed its communities was around mission at one point. Yep. And that's, I think that was a perfect moment for me because the missional community model asked, how is the vision of Jesus contributing to the world around us? And I was challenged by that. Um, I remember essentially what John Mark and the team did was let us teach on how Jesus is leading us where we rather not go. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going, what? Yeah, how's that? <laughs> I mean, only a personal God, as Tim Keller would say, only a personal God can contradict you. And not only would they talk about Jesus leading us in directions where we'd rather not go, community instead of autonomy, mission instead of ac- accumulation, you know what I mean? Like giving yeah. instead of instead of hold, I mean, man, I was going, what? Why would they preach on this and then talk about how they there there's life on the other side, though. Like this stuff actually leads to life. and it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> and they gave that model to community, and so that's where I had my first experiences around you know reaching out to refugee, being hurt by the refugee community, being held by my community. You know what I mean? Like like you were saying, these milestones, and I, I can only put it into context now because I read a little bit more on this. But a theology of blessing and cursing, I think that is for me that have been one of the most impactful things as a disciple of Jesus is to be blessed by his people in a world of many curses and in in a world of my own upbringing that had a lot of curses.
1: Yeah. And
0: so, and describe blessing. Blessing means to see, to talk and then to act. So they see me every Tuesday and I can't hide or I can, but then they'd know I'd be gone, you know? Yeah. See. And then they'd also see my vocation. They saw things in me and called it out. Over time, obviously, it's not like I showed up, this is what I wanted. I wanted to show up and everyone be like, bro, you're amazing. You're a prodigy. You're gonna change the world. Yeah, Yeah. that's not what happened. Um, It sounded like Gerald going...
1: Yeah, you you can't see him (laughs) in your headphones, but he's nodding his head and closing his eyes in a way that is... (laughs) A truly great representation of our friend Gerald who does that exact thing. <laughs> he nods his head and closes his eyes. And it's a, it's a blessing affirmation from Gerald.
0: <laughs> and absolutely. But it started with that, just those small blessings. And from my community, it's, hey, when you said that or when you did this, and, dude, being blessed in who you believe yourself to be but you would never, ever admit it, and and having people see you there and then call it out and then act on it by like laying a hand. Or that's listening prayer started to, you know, become a thing in our community. Imaginative prayer started to become a thing in our community around that time too. It, I mean, that was incredible for me. And the only reason why I can put it into words now is because, you know, that chapter in Roheiser's book on cursing and blessing. Yep. I was like, dude, I wish I could have said this, but this is what happened to me in community, still does. This is what happened to me in community that strengthened and made me feel so seen by Jesus. You
1: know, yeah, um, in the context of his people. If you're interested, he's referencing Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser, which is a fantastic, fantastic. read. Fantastic. Yeah.
0: So, the blessed, the, I think ha- being blessed was uh, one of the greatest gifts and has been the greatest gift. And it's clearly, as Bonhoeffer would say, or whoever, about uh, over idealizing community, please don't do that, you know, because I, I did at times and it costs. You know, yeah. when you over idealize.
1: Yeah. And you would know because now you've been doing it, like you said, for many years. Same same community, actually, mm-hmm. for many years. And you're a pastor of a church. that so you're dealing with people's community problems on a regular basis. Um, how, what do you think the tension is between the two things? This is something of a pickle to me as not just a pastor, oh, but pickle. Uh, yeah, it's a real pickle. Uh, not just as a pastor, but honestly, as a believer in church and a participant in church you know i'm a church goer uh is that it you know we tend to (laughs) not just christians and church leaders but people in general we the pendulum swings and we realize oh man we haven't done a good job representing a well so we should uh make up for it by presenting the other side and then that becomes the overemphasis and the pendulum swings to the other side. So case in point, here's a funny story. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a, there was a move at, in church circles at our church, uh, in churches, um, where, you know, it used to be kind of the tradition on mothers or father's day to be like, Hey, it's mothers or father's day. We should make the people who, um, are mothers or and or fathers stand up and we should say nice things about them and pray for them and hooray celebrate the moms in the room. Um, then one year someone speaks up inside the staff meeting. They says to the staff, they says, (laughs) Hey guys, when you do that, you're, uh, alienating, um, the people for whom mother's day is very painful. You know, there are people who have lost their moms or people who have, you know, abusive relationships with their moms or women who want to be moms, but can't be moms. And, and no one's speaking up for them. No one's saying anything, which is all very true. And the rest of us were in shock. <gasps> we said, oh, my God, we've been doing this terrible. We, you know, now everyone's feeling the full weight of, oh, you're thinking back to, crap, did I lead Mother's Day last year? What did I say? Was it <laughs> insensitive? And, and I don't, it sounds funny, but I mean, in, we, you're actually caring about people totally. and being like, oops, jeez. So then eventually, Mother's Day became and becomes a uh, a somber time of grief where someone you know, gets up there in sackcloth cloth and ashes and <laughs> rends their clothes and says, "We recognize this day of despair as a day of pain for our, for many people." And so that the this thing you know it's Mother's Day, it's a greeting card holiday, but a day which ordinarily is for celebration and, uh, and blessing. Memorializing. Yeah, becomes instead like, oh, right, we got to remember how much this sucks for a certain group of people. And, you know, and then now the other people feel bad about Mother's Day. Um, so now you're trying to do this balancing act and I'm making light of it, but it's a real thing where you are acknowledging uh, real pain and real hurt at the same time that you're acknowledging celebration, you know, and mourn, mourning with those who mourn and um, kind of trying to keep both things in the same place. It seems to me that the community conversation often does the same kind of thing where the church, certain corners of the church recognize that the small group model had been um, kind of polished up and uh, there was a veneer around it mm. that was inconsistent with the reality which is that like oh man life and community is so beautiful it's so good oh my god you got to do it that's where you come alive that's where you follow jesus <laughs> things that aren't uh, that aren't, aren't untrue that, right. you know but um but they weren't presented consistently with the uh, the other um <laughs> you know concurrent reality which is it also sucks and people are crappy all honeymoons die all honeymoons die you hurt each other you get hurt someone's going to do something lousy and you have to deal with that. And then like, Oh my God, in the middle of your community, someone um, has an affair or somebody dies. And now you have to help carry this terrible thing, or you are a participant in this terrible thing. Um, and so then the, you know, the pendulum swings and now you're up here going like, Oh, it's so hard and you should know how bad it sucks. and, <laughs> But both both things are true. Um, it's true that people hurt one another, and that people are deeply broken, and the community is the place often where the deepest wounding can happen mm-hmm. because there's vulnerability there. Absolutely. But at the same time, this the story that you and I are telling, I think, is is deeply sincere. This this beautiful life giving experience in which um, our faith and discipleship was enriched in ways not just enriched, but was deepened and matures matured in ways that it would not have been had we not been in community both things no that, you doubt know, it's like a buggy and horse type of situation they go together and, then, and then, or else it doesn't really happen you know what i mean so when you're having these pastoral conversations and are you do you find it difficult to hold both things or is that to you like you're giving them a handful and it is what it is you know what i mean you're, you're going to get hurt but you're also going to grow it's up to you come with us
0: A good question. Um, And I would say to that, having people that articulated the stages of discipleship were really helpful for me. It's the language around forewarned is forearmed, you know, and I was forewarned of the fact that community will heal you and community will hurt you. Um, Jackie Hill Perry had that great quote where she said, you know, "Who who have I been mostly hurt by the church? Who Jesus call me back to when I was hurt the church you know yeah. it's like honest leaders that talk about that help to shape my metaphors and help to shape my like temper my vision a bit
2: does that make sense not yeah, not absolutely. make
0: it, make the vision cynical and not over, op, opti, over opt, optimistically <laughs> vision <laughs> but like I'm t- leaving him hanging <laughs> as he extends <laughs> an
1: actual physical <laughs> hand over to me <laughs> it's like come on give me anything a word I'm right here yes Um, i understand exactly what you mean
0: it's it it i think having a and i i'm more head unfortunately so having a theology of um or not maybe not a theology but just a paradigm of stages was so helpful for me so again forewarned is forearmed you know so there it helped me to be adaptive and resilient and to wait for people for the option to be adaptive and resilient because when kids or when students or when people come in this just happened in my youth group uh, this is happening, my boundaries are being crossed, da-da-da-da. And you're like, yes, I get to teach you about boundaries. That can only have been had I, you know, if I, wasn't overly, if I was not overly cynical, I'd be like, oh, gosh, this is a crisis. If I was overly optimistic, I'd be like, stick it out. Yeah, it's going to be But a beautiful. tempered vision of community is absolutely boundaries are important. Let's work on making them conscious. Let's work on making them. And, and then the tempered vision also says, you're in a stage. There's a next stage. So stay the course. Like, keep keep going. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I wish I had had that with not just community, but with all facets of my life, these stages, you know? Mm-hmm. Black and white thinking will, gener- will will give way at some point. Like people that are a little ahead of the path that can tell you, oh, relax. Right. <laughs> you know? And
1: legitimize your pain at the same time so you
0: don't feel alienated, but you also feel challenged.
1: So you have found um, what, you know, spiritual formation writers call stage theory. To be helpful and kind of plotting S- a course, super. And it's again, it's generalizations.
0: So generalizations tend to be helpful, but not always true. So you don't want to put your all of your what is it beans in that in basket. <laughs> beans, <laughs> beans, eggs, and eggs, basket. In a basket. eggs <laughs> go in the basket. <laughs> but I think having st- <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm totally blowing it. Um, but I think having those things. That's something that John Mark actually has a high value for um and and was one of the gifts that I think he gave to the church and to me was having those stages to look ahead at so so you don't feel surprised in in a deg- to the degree in which you'll leave something or surprised to the degree in which you'll you'll isolate yourself uh, the, am I making you know Yeah totally yeah. what
1: what would what sources or what you know where would you direct someone who's hearing this and saying like oh my god I've never heard of stage theory where does one begin to learn about such a thing if that was helpful for him it might be helpful for me
0: Yeah, for early 20s, Holy Longing, tremendous read because it gives you a one-on-one, you know? Um, And then uh, for men, uh, I know this is kind of corny, but it's so helpful around um, a lot of men and lack of blessing. There's this book called Adam's Return, not great theology, really helpful, you know, content for your growing in masculinity, etc. So those were some helpful books, but ultimately it was a community who was forewarned Mm-hmm. it's a community of people who are forewarned about the same stuff. So they carry that paradigm too. So they can be non-anxious to you as well. That's why like the church loves the AA models. Now that's the new fad, right? Yeah. But it's also I because just they're talked com- about one last <laughs> night in my sermon. Oh, great. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to listen to it. But the, AA, what makes AA so impactful and so effective in my opinion is because it's a community of non-surprise and usually anxiety and fear are the things that that co- that coalesce with surprise like oh you can't I can't believe you did that or I can't believe you're going through that yeah totally unprepared <laughs> and then
1: so and then you're odd. off the rails oh my yeah
0: God, it's so odd. then the dimmer goes yeah you know or the light switch um so having a community like our community guides would be honest about this stuff you know about like hey there's a cycle to communities there is a honeymoon don't panic when you get when you bump into the disappointment yep That's so helpful. Yep.
1: You know, so that, you you know, I I don't have this balanced presentation of expectations and the ambiguities and the inevitabilities of both failure and success. And the vision that's held before us makes it all worth it. Agreed.
0: You will become like Jesus. And and imagine yourself being filled with love, joy, peace, patience, you know, in five years or 10 years from now that being reminded of that vision again and again, and again is necessary or else, you know, you'll become a good person <laughs> maybe, yeah. but yeah. you know, better behave. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly more up on your pop psychology. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. But the ultimately like, why are we even showing up here? Why is not deconstructing worth it? Because the most compelling person in the world believes or not beliefs, but died for us and rose again, that we could become like him. Yeah. You know, that's ultimately why we do what we do. And it's very easy to forget that.
1: Yeah. Before we go, um, I wanted to ask you a a very generic question, but it's a big one because as long as I've known you, I've known you for a long or many years now. And, uh, most of our conversations, even in passing, so I'll walk into a building where this guy is, he'll walk by me, he'll be like, Hey man and then immediately bring up some kind of theological debate or some author who said, Did you read this thing? or and then make a joke about it and then we both have to walk <laughs> in other directions but um. So I, as long as I've known you, and even that first, you know, evening where, you know, <laughs> you tore the curtain away and we prayed <laughs> together, I've known you to be like an inquisitive dude, a guy with a lot of questions, a guy not afraid to ask questions. A lot of those attributes that were um, detrimental at one point in your journey are just, it seems to me, inherent to your personality and can also serve you as a disciple of Jesus, you know, who who wants to learn to love God with your all your mind. um. So not uh, a soft-headed guy, not a um, you know generically. I mean, you know, like not a um, a person who's content with simple packages for complicated ideas. I envy those people, by the way. Yes, yes, too. I mean, I've sat with coffee with this guy who's deep, deeply distressed over theological crises, which is, you know is part and parcel of the experience of following Jesus. Mm-hmm. And through all that, here you sit all these years later, having navigated deconstruction, the the dimmer switch goes down, it goes up again, you've come to faith, you've participated in the family of God with all the ups and downs and highs and lows and Um, have unpacked and sorted through the journey of addressing trauma and and learning what you believe is true. Now you're a pastor, you're helping young people do those same things, but you haven't stopped asking questions. You haven't stopped wrestling. You haven't stopped Mm. um, in the ongoing wrestling with doubts and confusions and questions. Um, but here you sit, uh, an Orthodox disciple of Jesus that believed the same old things that disciples of Jesus have believed for hundreds of years, that you know, following Jesus is done in community, the context of the church, for one, um, that the scriptures are inspired and authoritative, that Jesus rose from the dead, that he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead, that his kingdom will never end. What made and makes orthodoxy, not just important, but the expression of discipleship to Jesus for you. Because surely in that journey, while you're in, you know, university and you're, you're messing with different ideas and philosophies, you could have, as is often the case, um, come to a more faith-friendly position that was not agnostic or atheistic or hostile to God, but also wasn't orthodoxy that was friendly to other different ideas like okay well the church got it wrong um, but you know what I like this part of Jesus I like this part was that ever an appealing notion to you or was it like you know what I got a smorgasbord yeah a buffet table of spirituality in which you take bits and pieces yeah so how did you end up here as someone who's espousing ideas that are deeply ancient core to disciples of Jesus all over the world Oh man, this is the most
0: unhelpful response, but grace, I I don't think I could have convinced myself if I tried. So the grace of Jesus, um, understanding trauma, because spiritual trauma, I, I mean, for those who are going through deconstruction, who have been legitimately hurt, I I mean, that is a very, very painful thing to reconcile and work through. Um, so I ache for those people. I'm not trying to be on this podcast so I can answer questions per se. I want it. I want people to know like that's an aching space. Deconstruction is awful. It's painful. Right, Josh?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So grace was, and then, um, orthodoxy, understanding some of church history, but also understanding the global church, Situating myself in the global church was so helpful, man, and is so helpful. Whereas the average Christian is probably a Nigerian teenager girl. <laughs> that makes me feel, you know what I mean? Like yes. it makes me feel something like, wow, how, how bubbled we are sometimes. So the global church and having helpful people kind of articulate what's going on in the world. It's so, that has been so helpful for me. Um, and then plausibility structures. Uh, cause I I'm still dimmer switch as you probably could be honest about too. Yeah, one hundred percent. Having people like my wife and community and just the church I attend believe on my behalf sometimes, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's crucial. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I don't have any kind of critical answers, but um. Yeah. Grace.
1: Yeah. Death to deconstruction by Joshua S. Porter is out now. Next week, I'm having a conversation with my friend Gavin Bennett about allies, progressivism, and millennial deconstruction.
2: The church used the fire and brimstone and the fear and shame, and now the progressive left is using it. Um, and for me, that's that's an appeal, that's not a critique. That's me going like, hey, as the church, we have tried that, and it does not work. It, it is not just does it not, it does not work, it, it is wrong because it harms people. Um, and so I think that's my appeal to the progressive left. Um, is to say, what if there's a way forward uh, where openness is on offer? Because openness is not what you received or what you experienced in your upbringing. And so when we don't experience an openness that is required in the fertile ground of spirituality, we are pushed into either one being closed and accepting that closed system, be it a a cult or whatever you want to say, or we go into what we've seen, which is this, you know, we call it the neo-fundamentalism, ...of the progressive movement, which is the... ...it's a recapitulation of the exact same thing, but with different set of beliefs. If you
1: want to do me a favor, there's a few really easy ways that you can help. One, buy a copy of Death to Deconstruction or buy a copy for a friend. Two, tell other people about the book by posting about it on your social media outlets. Three, leave the book a good review on Amazon.com. Four, follow along with the Death to Deconstruction podcast and leave it a good review on the Apple Podcast app. And finally follow my social media outlets to keep up with what's going on.